tuning in with Care Asia, bringing human stories to life. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tuning In by KR Asia. Today, I speak with John Chua, who is a co-founding member of the Sam Willows, arguably the most successful English music act in Singapore. He has been nominated three times for the MTV EMA for Best Southeast Asian Act and won several music awards in Singapore and around the region. In 2016, John opened Zendor Studios and in 2018 launched Zendor Records. The company aims for artists, producers and songwriters to build a new culture for effective collaboration. So where's your office? Near Fort Canning Park. Near Fort Canning. Oh, so like Clark Key. That's a great location. Yeah. The only problem is I haven't really found a good hawker scene nearby. Yeah. How long have you been in Singapore? Two years. Two years. A great hawker center nearby that area. No, the great hawker centers are around this area. Like <laughs> we've got a really good market called Wampo Market just across the road. I think hawker culture is kind of dying a little bit in Singapore. You get a couple of good gems here and there in the heartlands, but in the city, it's been commercialized quite a bit. Really? To a large extent, yeah. So, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah especially for a country like Singapore. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the culturally hawker scene yeah. is what you think about it. When you yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Are you Aussie? New Zealand. Oh, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Kiwi. Oh. Everybody mixes it up. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in Australia. I grew up there. Really? I moved to Singapore when I was eight years old. But I go back to Australia every year. I do a little, little work there as well. What but part of Australia? Sydney. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So nice. I was born in Sydney, kind of grew up in Sydney a little bit. And then I do quite a bit of work there from like 2013 to 2018. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that Australia is a very tough market for music especially because, yeah, you know, like the Aussie bands themselves, the Aussie acts themselves, they find it difficult to even push out within Australia itself. But... Yeah, so then I started to focus a little bit more on Southeast Asia. Right. Yeah. Right. So the difference between Southeast Asia and Australia, yeah, and in terms of the music industry, I mean, what would you say are the biggest things that come to mind? Um, I think Australia is still a lot more connected to the US. So in terms of process, in terms of the way of doing things, it's still very similar. Whereas for Southeast Asia, it's a little bit different. Also, I think it's a result of a lot of Southeast Asian states once being colonized, you know, and that kind of affected the way that the individual Southeast Asian governments viewed music in the first place. I mean, I could give you the whole history and rundown about Singapore music and Southeast Asian music, but I mean, in a nutshell, you know, like it played a factor and there's always been either in what they call like the influence by the main market, which is the US and Europe, or what we call sub-markets, which is like Hong Kong, Taiwan, and now with China, but the markets are usually pretty closed off and it is very based on ethnicity as well. Mm. So for example, if you're a Singaporean Chinese, you stand a chance in Taiwan. Back then, this was like maybe 20 years ago, you know, 20, 25 years ago. If you're Malay in Singapore, then it's Malaysia. Whereas for Thailand, because they are a little bit more homogeneous as a society, you have to be Thai or you have to speak Thai. Yeah. So. If you're white and you want to do well in Thailand, you have to be able to speak fluent Thai. Or if you're black and you're in Thailand, you have to speak fluent Thai. And Thailand, because they were never colonized, so they have a very strong culture of looking inward. So they celebrate their own artists. So if you go to Bangkok and you look at all the billboards, I would say 70-80% of them are actually local Thai artists. Right. Know? And they've built a very established industry in that sense. Yeah, In terms of production, in terms of just like fashion and just raw creative talent, you know, 
Thailand, they've really got it down, you know, and it's, that's very rare for Southeast Asia. The Philippines takes a lot of influence from America. Of course, we've all sorts of different kinds of American culture, whether it's basketball, whether it's music, you know. So it's really interesting, like, a lot of the Filipino singers that I know, like, they speak with the Filipino accent, and, but when they start singing, they sound like Celine Dion, you know. So <laughs> yeah. it's something that, yeah, you know, it's so unique in that sense. And mm-hmm. I think that's the beauty of Southeast Asia, because everyone is so different. And I think in the music industry in the last 20 years, you know, it started off with like all eyes on Korea. You know, Korea is going to be the next big mm. thing. And then BAM! K-pop, you know, BTS. And then like everyone gets slapped with Korean culture all over. And then it was all eyes on China after that. You know, Tencent Music and TikTok and all that. And then but China was still very closed off. And then in the last three years, you know, it's been all eyes in Southeast Asia. So it's been very interesting in how people are starting to view things. Like Taylor Swift, for example, for every billion streams she has, 500 million actually comes from from Asia. Wow. Yeah, so like that includes the Middle East, that includes India, that includes China, but you know, that's how important a market Southeast Asia actually is for everyone in that sense for when it comes to music consumption. So it's not in the American company's interest for us as Southeast Asia to develop our own talent because for every minute you're spending listening to a Malaysian artist, you're not listening to Post Malone, you know, Mm -hmm. and that becomes a problem for them in that sense. Yeah, so, but things are changing because of technology and because of social media. Yeah, I would say the next 10 years are going to be very interesting. So, within the whole Southeast Asian sphere, I might say, how does Singapore fit into the whole scheme of things, and how do you think the market itself and the talent pool has progressed over the few last Wait, few this years? is the interview where we casually chat. We have just kind of like gradually kind of moved, moved into, into it. it. Okay, yeah, okay, it's cool. been quite natural now. Okay, it's so where, where does Singapore fit into the whole music world within Southeast, Southeast Asia? Yeah. I think Singapore is very unique in a sense because we tend to not recognize our history and our culture anything before 1945. I mean, after World War II, and then the 20 years after World War II and Singapore's independence in 1965, you know, we were part of Malaysia from 62 to 65, actually. You know, but prior to that, there were these times of uncertainty, you know, but yet at the same time, if we really were to trace back Singapore's music history, it would be starting from the 60s. And this was, unfortunately, during the hippie movement in the U.S., so everyone was smoking weed, you know, everyone was like on LSD and all sorts of different drugs and then the Beatles were a big thing. But really interestingly enough, in the 60s there were a lot of Singapore bands. You got like Shirley and the Silver Strings, you have a whole bunch of... It's what, what people in the music industry in Singapore call the Silver Age of Singapore music. In the 60s it was big. Three or four local artists would consist of the top 10 charts. Mm-hmm. And some local artists actually beat out the Beatles in terms of charting music. And some of these guys still are alive till today. and. You know, they've shared stories about, yeah, you know, what it was like in the 60s because people were celebrating Singapore culture as a community because they, they would live through World War II, they lived through the uncertain times of post-colonialization to the point of when being part of Malaysia and leaving Malaysia and now we are on our own. So people made music and performed music with that experience and there was a very strong community culture. But that existed till the 70s. And at that point in time, historically, Singapore wanted to be allies with the US well, for obvious reasons, economic reasons, blah, 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 blah. And at that point in time, President Richard Nixon in the US, he declared the war on drugs. Declaring the war on drugs it was the same time where they were trying to shut down the hippie movement. And at the same time, the rock era was kind of birthed in the, as a result of that. I don't know whether you know this, but in Singapore in the 70s, they actually banned guys from having long hair. So if you had long hair, 
and you're at queuing up at the bank, you get sent to the back of the queue. Like restaurant waiters and waitresses have the right not to serve you if you're a guy with long hair because they associated guys with long hair with rock and roll and rock and roll with drugs. Mm. Yeah, so it was really interesting and there was a lot of propaganda about music being bad you know if your son is a rocker you know, he's probably smoking up marijuana in the corner or at the back alley or some shit like that and so I would say like my parents or people around my age in our 30s or our 20s our parents grew up in the 70s and 80s so they were either part of it or they were part of receiving that propaganda so I would say from the 80s to the 90s to even the 2000s a Singaporean pursuing music was just not something that was ideal unless you're Dick Lee right so Dick Lee he was different in the sense where he made very socially friendly music and he went to Japan to pursue his music and stuff like that so he was kind of like accepted by I guess the government to say that okay yeah this guy he has our stamp of approval because he sings about fried rice and he <laughs> sings about his hit song is called Fried Rice Paradise okay. And it's no joke, he has a movie about it, a theatre play about it, and a TV series about oh, it. Wow. Like, he's really made bank with that song, and he was big in Japan at that point in time. So, yeah, as a result, music also comes from a lot of counterculture, subcultures, you know, that people who feel like they can't fit into society, you know, and then they find their voice through music. And that has historically been proven of how music actually is associated with people who don't belong to the upper class. Now, of course, you're in classical music and all that, all the different genres of music requires a lot of skill. But I would say in the 21st century, it's always kind of deriving from subculture, whether it's hip hop, pop punk, rock, the genres go on and on. So, in general, Singapore had a very dark age with music for at least maybe over 30 years. And then I would say there was a sudden shift maybe in the early 2010s. If you ask me about Singapore music and how old the music industry really is, I would say it's less than 10 years old. Because we don't have local companies that have been around for 20, 30 years. You know, there are, but a lot of them have shifted to do government work or they've shifted to do alternate forms of music. But you talk about real actual record companies, music companies that are actually helping artists promote creativity, promote originality. That hasn't been around for a long time. So back to your question about where Singapore's role is in the Southeast Asia sphere, we have to take into account that because Singapore essentially it's a prosperous nation you know economically and financially we're doing good it's a very safe country but yet at the same time we don't celebrate our own culture so cultural currency is weak and on top of that the people don't support the government doesn't really support but what we have is money you know what we have is structure and we're very very attractive for investments so I would say if anything Singapore's role would be the backbone of the Southeast Asian industry where brands actually come in here Singapore hosts the most concerts, by the way. So if Coldplay were to come, Bruno Mars were to come, they would pick Singapore mm. because we are more lax on rules. Because, for example, Malaysia, Indonesia, they're considered like you know like Muslim countries. Mm. So if Lady Gaga wants to go there, she can't wear a meat outfit. You know, she has to <laughs> yeah. cover her shoulders. Yeah. The rules are a little bit more lax here, and at the same time, you know, because we promote the idea of crazy rich and luxury, overseas artists would want to come here because they think that this is the place where they can live a good life because mm. Singapore to the West is always this idea of like utopia like oh Marina Bay Sands oh you know they have toilets they can talk to us or some shit like that I don't know like it just, it's this concept of being futuristic mm. so I mean that's where Singapore stands in my opinion it's a problem because it's more of a facade than it actually being very very true so Working in the music business for the last 10 years, you know, you suddenly realize that, yeah, we need to build infrastructure and the people who actually 
could make the difference, whether they're in government bodies, whether they're in private MNCs and stuff like that, they're not educated and they're not aware of what needs to happen in order for it to be successful in its own right. Mm. So for us here at Zendo and myself, you know, we take it in our own stride to be able to communicate this to them, to also speak to the people on the ground, the people on the street, what they actually need. Because across a lot of societies, music and dance and theatre has always been a form of social mobility that maybe I can't study well, I can't be a lawyer or a doctor, but maybe I'm talented in music, maybe I'm talented, I have our stories to tell, and people in my community are interested in these stories. So hopefully Singapore would be able to form, to become the backbone of the Southeast Asian music industry. So you mentioned developing the infrastructure yeah. and getting the word out. I mean, what are some of the things that you think need to be done within the sort of short to medium term to, to really get to that stage of Singapore being a backbone? Yeah, I think it's going beyond thinking that working in music is just being the artist. Everybody wants to be Beyonce, everybody wants to be Bruno Mars, everybody wants to be One Direction, I don't know. But for every Beyonce and every Kanye West, there's another 50 other people standing behind him that is actually creating that support. Or whether it's managers, it's agents, it's A&R reps, it's producers, songwriters, the list goes on and on. Mm. And I think with Singapore, there are people with that kind of talent that could make a very good music executive, but they choose not to because there aren't a lot of opportunities. Because major labels, their staff count here is a big. It's more like a sub-office in that sense. It's not really a main office. And as a result, there are not a lot of local companies who actually do it on their own. So there aren't a lot of good jobs available and there hasn't really been a lot of success stories for people who actually do very well and take their experience and bring it back. So for me personally, like I've had the privilege to travel across the world, LA, Sweden, Thailand, etc., to understand and study how the other countries do it. So yeah, you know, taking it back and my goal right now is to actually build this infrastructure so that people actually realize that not only that Singapore has talent in terms of artist talent, but we have also can take talent who can actually make something out of nothing. And I think that should be the priority at this point of time to build infrastructure. Okay. So 2020 in general yeah. has been pretty challenging for, for many people, many industries. Yeah. How has music or the creative space in general, how has that industry managed uh, in Southeast Asia this year? I think, I think the biggest problem for music in general is that at the end of the day, you know, you can go to the studio, you can make a record, but the real joy comes in live performances, mm. in concert. I mean, I'm sure you've been to a concert before. The experience of going to a concert, like, no one can take that away from mm. you. Because you go there with maybe 300 or 3,000 other people, and everyone goes there for the same reason. For that one and a half hours to two hours, you are absorbed into like a different dimension and the music kind of brings you to a different level in that sense and then when you leave the concert you feel like a certain level of emptiness you know your serotonin goes down but then it makes you crave for the next one whether it's from the same artist or whether from it's another artist but you take that experience away from the consumer and it basically crumbles the entire music ecosystem where I know like a lot of people are saying oh we got to do live stream shows we got to do visual shows but I mean, if your favorite artist is Coldplay and watching Coldplay on your phone and watching Coldplay at the stadium, it's two different experiences altogether. Mm. Even though they're playing the exact same set, singing the exact same lyrics with the exact same music, the experience is different because music consumption 
at the end of the day, historically has proven that it's a social event. Like you could go to a Victorian theatre and watch one girl play a violin for an hour and it's still an experience, mm-hmm. you know, and then you start clapping at the end. The idea of clapping, the idea of cheering, the idea of it being a collective experience has always been the essence of music and why the music industry even exists in the first place. Like the whole idea of recorded music was actually a byproduct of live performances. It's like, oh, a performer can only perform once at one moment. But if I record the music, people can still kind of consume a little bit, you know, get a little bit of a taste of it prior to watching that person. So the end goal is always to do live shows, you know. Mm -hmm. And COVID, unfortunately, has removed the experience for a lot of people. And as a result of that, the music industry just suffers. Not so much on the business end, because people can still sell records, but more for the artist end, because their growth has stifled, mm. you know, stifled significantly. I think the music artists who actually stand the test of time are those that are great in the studio, but also great on stage. And you have to be both in order to kind of last through the whole marathon that is the music business. But I think in general, yeah, COVID just really stopped that process. So even for us, you know, we, we actually produce some live stream shows, but we also know that it's supposed to be a temporary measure because we can't forget the fact that music is supposed to be a social event rather than something that you really experience it on your own. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, Zindo, you guys did the Madrid Live yeah. virtual concert. So is that something that you are interested in continuing post-COVID? Do you see it sort of dying out once you've So Majula Life originally was supposed to be a Majula festival. So mm-hmm. it was supposed to be a music festival, right. a local music festival where we commission local comedians, local music, and they have local food and Milo trucks because Singaporeans love Milo <laughs> trucks. And we were going to do that whole concept and obviously we couldn't do it because of COVID. So this year's rendition, we decided to just turn it into a high quality live concert mm-hmm. and then we filmed that at the Marina Bay Sands. But I think next year, we'll still go back to the original idea because I think Singaporeans in general need to learn to let loose. I think we're always so caught up in the rat race. Regardless of industry, regardless of social class, we always think that we have to keep moving forward and pushing forward and that if somebody achieves something, it's like opportunity cost. Like, oh, if he's getting a promotion, means I can't get a promotion. But I think the problem with that is that we don't lift each other up, you know, and as a society, that's a problem. And on top of that, I think Singapore as a country, we are very safe. Like you could be a lady and walk around at 1am in a back alley and probably feel a little bit scared, but the chances of you getting mugged or attacked or raped is a lot lower compared to a lot of other Southeast Asian mm-hmm. countries, right? As a result of that, we also have a very strong snitch culture here in Singapore. Like we can't stand the fact if someone else is having fun. So for example, if you're staying at home and you see your neighbors having a party, the first thing you think of, oh, I'm going to call the cops. Even though you may not be able to hear anything, and I mean, you can see it, but all you need to do is close your curtains and pretend that it's not there. But you can't stand the fact that someone else is having fun and you're not there. You know, I think that's a fundamental problem with Singapore society, and it actually reflects back into the music business. Because you're willing to support someone up to a certain point, and then after that, that person is on its own. And then you realize that the artists that Singapore has groomed have all decided to really pursue their career elsewhere mm-hmm. you know take our biggest pop star JJ Lin for example I mean he's living in Taiwan does his career in China comes back to Singapore every once in a while for a concert and for a national day but doesn't really care about what's happening here in that sense mm-hmm. and I think it's also a case where it's how society 
kind of views it that you're always better if you're a foreign product and I think things are slowly changing of course but in general yeah you know I think things are going to change with a younger generation coming up mm-hmm. yeah so you've lived in Sydney and Singapore and yeah. uh, you've experienced different environments being in different environments does it affect your creative process and your creative juices at all oh 100% mm-hmm. so on an average non-covid year I would travel at least once or twice a month mm-hmm. last year alone in 2019 I went to LA three times in six months mm-hmm. you know and I enjoy being in another country a lot because meeting new people, you learn different experiences, you know, writing music especially, working with people who come from a completely different background. You start to understand the difficulties that they have. You realize that someone coming from Singapore, certain privileges that we have that we take for granted, you know, like public transportation, safety, yeah, just a government that kind of really takes care of you to a certain extent and then you realize that people in other countries have different problems and they face different problems but yet at the same time music is that universal language that kind of puts us together so like if I go to Thailand and I work with a Thai artist I've actually written songs with people that can't speak English and I obviously can't speak Thai so you realize that music is that universal language so I do enjoy it because it kind of excites me every time I am put in a situation to experience something that's different but at the same time, wanting to take the experience and bring it back to Singapore and have more people experience the same thing that I've experienced, you know, and I guess that's the whole reason why we built Zando. It's a place for community, it's a place for business, but yet it's a place at the end of the day to, to kind of bring new grounds. I think that's really the whole point of why I set this place up in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So staying on the creative process, looking back at your career and where you are today, how has your creative process evolved from uh, when you first started? I think the scary thing is that when I first did it, there was no experience. Mm-hmm. So it's going with what I feel is right. Whereas as the years go by, you know, you start thinking with rather from what I feel is right to what I know is right. And it becomes a fundamental problem for me, especially when I think I know what I'm doing. And which is why for creative processes, I do enjoy working with a lot younger songwriters or younger producers. I rather punch down than punch up in that sense. Like if you tell me like, oh, you can work with this producer who's done like 10 platinum records and recorded with, I don't know, like David, like, you know, David Foster. Like it's exciting. Yes, I go there to learn from them. But if it's about really creating a product, I like working with your 18, 19, 20 year olds who are hungry and they don't play by the rules because they don't know better, Mm -hmm. you know, but yet they're able to create something that feels good. And I'd rather put myself in that creative environment than the other creative environment. Although I would do both, but if I had a choice, I would go with the the younger producer and the younger writer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, last couple of questions. For the local Singaporeans here, how can they support the local music scene? Buy the music, buy merchandise, buy tickets to your show, show some love on social media. It's really interesting because Singaporeans are pretty fucked up sometimes I mean not everyone of course but like I've seen cases where people actually create burner accounts to comment hate comments on local artists who are trying their best to put out their music and it's really weird like it's something that I cannot understand Mm. and then I mean I spoke to a lot of friends about this and one thing we concluded is it comes from two places it comes from a place of jealousy and it comes from a place of you hate what you don't understand and as a result of that yeah your dad has 
kind of loomed into becoming like a little culture here in Singapore mm-hmm. where it's always easier to tear someone down than to put someone up. And the funny thing is that you would tear everybody down around you, but when it's time to be your turn, you expect people to pull you up. And then there's this whole concept and this idea of, I mean, a comment is free. A like on Instagram is free. A share is free. Mm. Like, it doesn't cost you any money to do that to help promote somebody else. And maybe you say, oh, I'm not an influencer, I'm not a celebrity, no one's going to listen to me. But the truth is, word of mouth has always been the best way of promotions, music promotion. And there's this study that says that people stop sharing music after the age of 25 because there's a capacity of how much music that you're allowed to like and then you always, like, you can't really replace it. Like, if you grew up listening to, say, Guns N' Roses, in your head, Guns N' Roses is always printed to be the best mm. rock band. So there could be five seconds of summer coming up, and you're like, no, five seconds of summer is nowhere close to Guns N' Roses. Like, Axel, Axel Rose and Slash is gonna, like, wipe them on the floor any day, which is theoretically true. I, I think of it that way sometimes. But also understanding that 15-year-old or 17-year-old who has never heard of Guns N' Roses has never experienced Guns N' Roses the same way that maybe people our age has, has done and as a result to them five seconds of summer is their guns and roses and we need to learn to respect that like that's the truth you know because music at the end of the day is subjective there's no way that you can look at mu- music and think it's objective yeah so people just need to learn to show more love and more support which is something that i realized that they do in malaysia a lot in mm. thailand they do that a lot in the philippines they do that a lot you can have a 15 year old singer who has talent and you realize that she does her first show and a thousand people show up. And all these thousand people are like friends, families, cousins, friends of cousins. And they get a thousand people showing up, which is something that is beautiful in its own right. But for some reason, I feel like in Singapore, we don't really have that. I mean, I don't have the answer of how to change it. I don't know, to be honest, because I feel like it's ingrained into society, you know, that it's a dog eat dog world, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. Okay, I have this theory actually, like really funny, I was just talking to a friend about this, is that I think the reason why is because our education system goes by this thing called the bell curve. You know what the bell curve is, right? So basically, if there's a test upon 100, and let's say there are 40 students in the class, and 35 students get over 90, right? They start zooming in at the 90. So if you get a 92, you get a B, maybe. And then if you get 97, then you get an A. When in actual reality, why can't we just celebrate all 35 people who has gotten 90 and give them all an A. You know, but you can't, you know, because of the concept of the bell curve. Mm. And then it's so funny because back when I was in university, people actually prayed to this thing called a bell curve god. You know, so it's so ridiculous. Like, I mean, I don't know. And I think that fundamentally messes with the psychology of a lot of people who study and live in Singapore Mm. because it's not only about me doing well, it's that I need to make sure that I need to do better than everybody else or everybody else has to do worse than me. So there's these jokes like in the the really good schools in Singapore, like you can leave your phone, your wallet and your notes on the table and they'll steal your notes. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, fundamentally that is a huge problem. I, I feel the whole idea of bell curve, the whole idea of things being so competitive then in order for me to do well everybody else can't do well Mm -hmm. when that shouldn't even be the case you know because i think everyone who puts in the work and gets the results should be celebrated at the end of the day yeah agree so final question what are your key takeaways for 2020 innovation 
is key mm -hmm. for sure being able to adapt to an ever-changing society mm -hmm. I think that that is that is key um, our key takeaways is that things that you've taken years to build can just be destroyed and removed from you in a split second and it's nobody's fault mm. you know the last thing is always have an act of God clause in your contracts because stuff like COVID falls under act of God to a certain extent so it's always good to have that in a contract it's very practical advice that I got and I think it's also finding happiness in the simpler things people complain that oh you know I gotta stay home blah 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 I got to spend more time with my wife in the last nine months than I have the entire time that I've dated her so you know you really find joy in that and yeah it helped me slow down as well in terms of running my business pursuing music you know just always thinking that I have to move on to the next thing you know 2020 has taught me to, to slow down mm -hmm. yeah, find joy in the same thing okay well thank you very much John right, I really appreciate you. your time of Fantastic. course thank you for having me <laughs>